0: I have a couple of announcements I need to make that affect us all as a church, and that therefore um, I, I, I would encourage you to, to listen closely to what I'm about to say. Uh, they're both uh, serious, but one of them is a lot of fun, and the other is not so much, uh, really, but both are a matter of prayer that I'd like you all to commit to. Number one, we as elders, this is the fun one, uh, believe that we have identified the additions, plural, to our staff that we have been diligently praying for and searching for. Uh, When Pastor Jim left to be a preaching pastor in Washington State last summer, we told you all we were looking for one man to serve in a wide area of responsibility overseeing worship, children's ministry, and our growing youth ministry. And we had a, a few challenges in pursuing that goal, and so we've continued to pray and trust the Lord and believe that He would lead us. And we believe that He has, in fact, led us to an answer. And so, what we are proposing is not one person but two. And we are commending uh, a, a young man named Stephen Bollier, He got a good French name. Uh, to you as our new associate pastor candidate, and he will oversee our youth ministry and our children's ministry team. And uh, in addition, we're recommending that we hire Tony Malik as our official worship leader to oversee our worship ministry team, and also recommending that he would receive a weekly stipend as compensation for the significant amount of work that he puts into putting together our worship service each week. And we believe that the combination of those two men is going to not only meet the needs we set out to fill, but actually do so at less expense than what we had budgeted for originally for one guy, Um, which is a a pretty significant blessing from our perspective. Uh, We've put together a packet of information. You should have gotten some of that as you came in today. Uh, Stephen will be visiting with us. He was here this last week. I uh, sat with Mark and Janet Swanson, if you were paying attention to who was sitting where. Uh, but if not, you'll get a chance to uh, meet them over the weekend of the 19th of this month. And what we would like to do with that is um, provide you several opportunities to interact with Stephen and his wife Jenny, and then also have some, some Q&A with them and, uh, and be able to, to really get a sense for who they are in ministry Uh, And then also give you a chance to talk to Tony a little bit as part of that schedule. Uh, That schedule is not set yet. It will be set this week and communicated to you on a variety of fronts. It will be on our Facebook page. It will be sent out to you in the mail. We'll also, in case we missed anybody, hand them out at church. So uh, we will uh, make that schedule available in whatever way we can. But as always... If you have questions about anything related to church or to uh, this in particular, see me or see one of the elders. Uh, we would be happy to talk with you about anything you might be concerned about or just um, just curious to know. So uh, that's the fun announcement, uh, and I am really excited about both the prospect of adding Tony to the staff as well as the prospect of adding Stephen to our staff. Uh, both are tremendous men with wonderful gifts and uh, are real I think will be a real blessing to our church. but you'll have an opportunity if you're a member to actually vote on those decisions and uh, and we'll move forward as a church based on your response to to that so second announcement is of a more difficult nature and it's this that our brother uh, Rick Velock has lost the use of one of his vocal cords. And he has been to a variety of specialists to see if that situation can be medically fixed. But it may well turn out to be permanent. And the reason is is that they have discovered this last week a large mass in his thyroid gland. And they're not sure whether or not at this point it is cancerous. They'll do biopsies soon to determine that and then make a decision about a, a course of treatment if it is in fact cancerous. But this condition makes uh, singing impossible and uh, speaking difficult, and so it's a huge blow to him. Uh, It's a loss for us as a church, and I would just invite you all to pray for Rick and pray for um, also us as a church. Um, it's It's a loss that we will feel. And uh, also pray for, obviously, for our staff situation. So I'm just going to lead us all in prayer right now for these things, okay? God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your great grace to us. We thank you that you are merciful, far beyond even our capacity for sin. Father, as much trouble as we get into, your grace covers even there. And we say that, Father, in celebration, not because we love to sin, but because we love you, and we are amazed that your grace extends so low no one can go below it. And Father, we pray and we ask you this morning for healing. We trust you that you would provide healing for our brother Rick. Uh, He is a valued member of our congregation, one of the pillars of this place. And, Father, we pray that you would heal him. It's, it, the loss of, of part of his voice is, is inhibiting to his ministry, and it inhibits his ability to give public praise to you. Father, we pray for your healing. We pray that by whatever means you would choose, whether through medical treatment or through simply the miraculous power of your spirit at work in his life, Father, that healing would come. And Father, we also pray for Stephen and for Jenny and for Tony and Ginger as uh, we contemplate as a church a decision to add uh, these families to our staff and to uh, official uh, compensated ministry here. And Father, we pray that you would, lo- would lead us by your Holy Spirit, that you would make your will clear and obvious and easy, therefore, to follow. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to be looking this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And on the surface, that passage is about whether it's okay to eat food sacrificed to an idol or not. And a lot of you might wonder, therefore, what possible relevance that might have to your life in that uh, people who worship idols are fairly scarce on the ground here in America, and you don't in probably, in fact, know anybody, uh, you might, uh, nowadays, who has, say, a Ganesh statue in their, uh, in their house or uh, a little Buddha shrine that they pray to. Um, and you might wonder, what relevance does this have for my life? But here is the thing. On the surface, it's about this issue of food sacrifice to idols, but the underlying issue is one of conformity to the pressures of the surrounding culture and the damage that is done to your faith and to other people who are in the body of Christ with you that grows out of your conformity to the culture. Now... Not a lot of you probably feel any social pressure to go participate in the worship of an idol. Amen? But a lot of... uh, Raise your hand if you have ever felt pressure, peer or otherwise, to conform to the culture of America. Okay? There's a lot of pressure to fit in to the surrounding culture, to think and to act in ways that non-Christians do around us and standing standing up for Jesus very often means standing alone and sometimes there's even not just social cost but economic costs for doing that and this issue is something that confronts the Corinthians, and it's something that confronts us as well. So as you make your way to 1 Corinthians 8, let me give you a little background to this text. In the Greco-Roman world, the whole thing was idolatrous. It was all centered around the worship of various idols and, and petty deities over various things. So people had household gods in their homes, and there were gods and there were goddesses for every aspect of your life. There were gods and goddesses for childbirth and travel and death and marriage and business and sex and war and music and art and weather and crops and wild places and cooking and baking and trees and rivers and oceans and sky and animals and philosophy and on and on and on. Hundreds, literally, of gods and goddesses over all these various aspects of life. And there was a god for everything, and and worshiping the gods made you a normal part of the typical Greco-Roman community. And and on top of that, worshiping them was considered part of your civic responsibilities and duty. In fact, uh, one of the things particularly important at Corinth was the imperial cult, where you worshipped the emperors of Rome as divine figures. And to refuse to do that was to stand outside your culture and to be ostracized and regarded as an outcast and even in some sense as a traitor to the Roman Empire which ruled you and which had established that city as a colony. And on top of that These were not just religious celebrations, although they were certainly that. They were also part of social life, and the worship of the gods and the goddesses was part of the fabric of everything you did. Normal homes did not have large spaces in which you could accommodate a big group of people, but the places that did were called temples. And they all had these big rooms that you could rent for a variety of social functions. And you would go down to the temple of Demeter or Aphrodite or Ares or whomever, and you would rent one of these rooms, and you'd have a big party. And you'd celebrate things like childbirth. You know, there's no Chuck E. Cheese. Okay? You'd have birthdays and wedding anniversaries and And political victories and rallies, you would have coming-of-age parties and celebrate childbirth and funerals and election uh, results and so forth. And this is all done in the context of being associated with these temples. And as part of these celebrations, you would take the most abundant source of meat that was available, which was the meat that was sacrificed in these temples. It was available after the sacrifices were done at a discount rate. It was good meat, and it's right there convenient at the butcher shop. And you could go and you could participate in this. And it was a, it was a wonderful, festive kind of a thing. And, and to therefore not participate in that was to put yourself on the margins of society. Now imagine you are a Christian who comes to Christ in this environment where everything is centered and it's around the temples and it's not just religious, it's also civic. You know, imagine if, as an example, Claude Ellen Days or the Fourth of July Parade or the Homecoming Parade or whatever else is going on here in the community had a religious element And on top of that, all of your family, and all of your business associates, and all of the people you know, except your fellow Christians, are participating in this and inviting you down to the festival. This is the background to this text, and Paul had been with these folks for a number of months when he planted the church and they're writing him back with questions and I don't think therefore because he was with them so long this is an issue that was so woven into the fabric of the culture that I don't think this is something he had not addressed before therefore I don't think he is answering a question of can we eat in the idol's temple I think he is answering a slightly different question, which is, why can't we eat in the idol's temple? And they have grown in their spiritual understanding and their sophistication, and so they've come up with some reasons why they think they should be allowed to. And Paul is responding in this chapter to their rationalization for why they want to do this. And so we're going to dig into it here, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, Paul starts off this passage, as he does a, a few other places in this book, with now concerning and again that's his way of introducing a question they had written to ask him about and as I said I think the question they're asking here is why can't we eat food in the idol temples and he quotes some reasons and some justifications that they are giving here in verse 1 and then he quotes two others down in verse 4. And they're pushing back against Paul's instruction that they're not to do this. And so they, they their argument is well, we all have knowledge. We all have knowledge. And we know that the idol isn't real, that he doesn't represent or she doesn't represent anything actual, and we're not worshiping the idol, Paul. We all have that knowledge of the true God, and we're not worshiping the idol, and we know that the idol doesn't represent anything real, and so, you know, it's okay. And he says in response, he gives a couple responses. Number one, he says, look, um, the the claim you're making is making you arrogant. It's causing you to be puffed up like a strutting turkey. You know, this is the time of year when the turkeys, the wild turkeys are breeding, and maybe you've seen them out in some of the fields. And the males, you know, they fan their tail out, and they puff up every feather on their body, and they make themselves look enormous. And they kind of waddle around, and they drag their wings, you know. And the whole idea is to impress the other males, first of all, that I'm bigger and badder and rougher than you, and to impress the girls of the same qualities that they will want to have chicks. And so... uh. He's saying it's making you puffed up. You and your knowledge that you're claiming is making you, you know, (laughs) swell up. And he says in contrast to that, love builds up. And by that he means love builds up other people. He's not saying that, that knowledge is bad or that theology in itself is a bad thing. It's a good thing. But he is saying that that their knowledge is not resulting in greater love for God or for their neighbor, and therefore it is a bad thing. In fact, it's unhelpful and sinful because the goal is not simply that we know more. Amen? Let me quote you some Howard Hendricks on this. Okay? He says, gentlemen, the goal of Bible study is not that you would be a smarter sinner. (laughs) All right? He was great. He's with the Lord now, but he was great. Okay? The goal of Bible study is not that we would be smarter sinners. The goal is that our life would be transformed by the power of God as we are obedient through the power of the Holy Spirit to what the text has to say. It's not that we would be smarter sinners. And Paul says, look, you're just becoming smarter sinners here. And what you ought to be full of is not knowledge, but love for God and others. And on top of that, none of us know everything the way we should. In other words, our sinfulness limits our ability to understand everything that we ought to understand. The smartest people in the world still don't reason as they should because their minds, along with the rest of them, are impacted by the fact that they have a sin nature. And one day, we will know without the blinders of sin on ourselves. But we don't yet know that way. And until we're glorified, a lot of things that seem right and good are, in fact, wrong and sinful. He says we don't know how we ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See how Paul links that he is loved by God. I'm sorry, I misquoted it. If he, if anyone, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He links the two. He says, he says, if you love God, then God knows you, and that's good. It's not the goal of life; is not that we would know God but that God would know us and that we would love him. And this is what the commentator R.B. Hayes says about that. He says, what counts is not so much our knowledge of God as God's knowledge of us. And the reason Paul says this is that being known by God is one of Paul's characteristic ways of describing being, uh, being saved and belonging to God. That's what it means to be, to be known by God, is to belong to and be saved by the Lord. And so the implication that, of what Paul is saying in response to their statement is this, that people who are known by God have no, they have no good reason for being in an idol's temple in any part of it whether you know that thing is real or not. Let's read some more text here. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, all, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now as I said before, in, in verse four here, Paul is quoting some more Corinthian argument. "We know that an idol has no real existence, and we also know there is no God but one. This is their justification, Again. It's not a reason, it's your rationalization. And those two statements, by the way, are both true. But look at verse 5 here. The world, Paul says, actually is full of real beings that are worshipped as gods. And those beings, though they're subordinate in power to God the Father... Nevertheless, compete with God, the real God, for worship. And Paul calls them gods and lords. And possibly he is distinguishing there between pseudo-divine figures like Zeus or Hera or Hermes or whoever and uh, human beings who are worshipped as gods like the emperors were. So you've got gods and you've got lords. But regardless, what he's saying is is that whether this being is part of the demonic realm specifically or whether it's something that people have divinized, like Augustus Caesar, people really do worship these things, and there is a reality that those idols represent. And Paul says in chapter 10 that worshiping or eating is, in an idol's temple is equivalent to fellowshipping with a demon. Let's look at this a little little further here in verse 5. He says, For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And in case you've ever wondered, by the way, Where did the early church come up with this idea of the Trinity? You know, the term Trinity is not anywhere in the Scriptures, so where did they come up with that? Well, this is one of the places. Those guys did not weave that out of whole cloth. They looked at their Bibles, and they saw that though the Scriptures, including here, affirm the existence of one God, they affirm also more than one person, as being within that one being who is God. And in fact, the terms that are used for Jesus and for the Father are tightly wrapped up in one another. They're not identified as the same, but they're identified as being as much like each other as they can be without being interchangeable. They're not interchangeable. The Father and the Son are distinct, but they are not separate. There's some some deep theology right here. Uh, So Paul describes the Father as the person from whom all things come. He is the source of all of creation. And the Father is the one, to borrow the language of the ancient creed, who eternally begets the Son before all ages, so that the Son is begotten, not made, light from light, having the same nature and substance as the Father. In other words, they have the same nature, they have all the same attributes and the same characteristics, but they are not the same, even though they are part of the same being who is God. You can meditate on that and it will blow your mind. But nevertheless, the Father is also the one for whom we exist. We were created to bring glory to the Father. And then Paul borrows similar language and he says, "Look, though the, the Father is our uh, purpose of our existence is to bring glory to the Father, the Son is the one through whom all things were made and through whom we exist. So according to Paul, And the rest of Scripture, it is the Word of God, the Son, who makes all things for the Father's glory. So elsewhere in Scripture, all the different members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, are all described in differing ways, but they're all described as participating in creation in various aspects. And here, Paul highlights the Son's role in bringing about the creation and he is saying this is the implication of what he's telling us in, in this, this great theological section. That if we really do believe in one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, then what business does a Christian have being present in a place where there are competing gods and lords? And the answer is none. We belong to one God through the Father. And it's our job to bring Him glory. And we were created by the Son, Jesus, and we need to live like it. Amen? Now, look here at the rest of this passage. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Now, in this section, I think what Paul is doing is twofold. On the one hand, I think that what he suspects uh, is that In spite of all of the protests and and rationalization and and, all kinds of argumentation to the contrary, the people who are making noise about having superior knowledge are really just giving fancy um, song and dance for doing uh, what Paul had explicitly told them not to do. Now, how many of your parents... How many of you have seen this? <laughs> right? Didn't I tell you not to do that? Well, yes, but... Da, 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 da. <laughs> you know, I, I saw that, that movie Chicago, and I saw, you know, give them the razzle-dazzle, right? Let's give mom and dad the razzle-dazzle, and hopefully they won't notice that we're doing what they had told us explicitly not to do. Right? And that's essentially, I think, what Paul thinks is going on—that they've constructed a theology by which they get to do what he had told them not to do, and that they have—they have, they have uh, come up with elaborate justifications for it, and, and said, "Well, we have the right to do this because we know all these things," and so. He is addressing them, in a sense, in the third person. Even though he knows that he's not getting direct at them yet. He'll do that in chapter 10. But he says, Some, through former association with idols... In other words, all of you... (laughs) Okay, that's what he's really saying. But some, through former association of idols have a weak conscience, and are doing what they know they shouldn't do. And so I think he's talking up there about the vast majority of the Corinthian church. And they're too proud to admit that that's really what's going on, and so Paul addresses them in the third person. And he's he's saying, you all are flirting with the idolatry you just left, and you're encouraging one another through your eating in the idol temple to you're encouraging other people to go back into that idolatrous lifestyle you turned away from when you came to Christ. And so when he's talking about people who are weak, I think in reality he's talking about most of them. But coming at it indirectly because he's trying to persuade them and not just make them feel condemned. And in addition to that, I think what he's trying to do is to help them see that their knowledge is really inadequate because they haven't considered the effects of their actions on their brothers and sisters. And it, it might be true that a person can reject idolatry and then maybe they could eat in a pagan temple in the same way I can eat lunch at the Parthenon today and nobody think, well, man, he's really a great Athena worshiper. Or eat at a museum that has these statues in it. And nobody thinks any of any religious connection to that. But he's saying, look, right here, you're enticing your brother and sister to go back into the sin they just left. And you're destroying their faith by your actions. And he says, look here. Your brother is more important than what you in your theological knowledge think or believe because love means protecting one another from sin to the extent that it depends on you. Why? Because Jesus died for that person. And the gospel doesn't just mean, therefore, believing all the right things about Jesus' death and resurrection, though obviously those facts are central. But it also means living your life in such a way that it's a testimony to others, to your fellow believers and to the watching world that you are someone who is a new creation in Christ. And if there's no distinction in your behavior from everybody else around you in your culture, it doesn't function as a very effective testimony and witness to them of the power of the gospel in your life. Amen? So, there's a lot of areas that this text speaks to in our lives because there's a lot of areas where we um, are pressured by our culture to conform the morals and values and thinking of the culture we live in. And I could expound on a whole lot of that. We're already over time, but I'm just going to highlight four here. You got five minutes? Give me five minutes, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll identify four of these, okay? And, and as we do, please understand, I am not picking on these because I want to be a legalist. And I want to have standards that if you meet them, that God will love you. That is not the way that Christianity works. God loves you when you're a sinner, and he sends Jesus to die on the cross for your sin and to give you new life. And this is part of the implication of that, that you might live the actual new life. We don't obey God in order to have him love us, but because he loves us, we, o- we obey him out of sacrifice and worship. Okay? So, but here's Martin Luther on this. He says, If I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, then I am not confessing Christ however boldly I may be professing Christ. For where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the, uh, all the battlefield elsewhere is mere retreat and disgrace if he flinches at that point. You get what he's saying? In other words, if I'm faithful to Jesus everywhere except where the culture is currently fighting me, In other words, I'll stand for Jesus like a soldier on the battlefield, any place except where there's actually shooting. (laughs) Then what am I doing? I'm running away. Here's four areas where the culture is shooting and where we need to stand. First of all, with biblical sexual morality. And right now, this is where the battle is very, very hot. And a lot of times we get criticized as Christians or especially as pastors because you guys are so hung up on that. Why do you talk about that all the time? And you say, because we live in a culture that will not shut up about these things. And which is totally antithetical on this. Here's the deal. Christians believe that in the beginning God created male and female, equal yet distinct, made in the image of God, who made marriage for one man and one woman, and sex as the seal of that covenant between them. And humanity in its sinfulness has come up with all kinds of varieties of different viewpoint than God's. And therefore, if you follow that instruction never mind if you proclaim it, you are going to be outcasts and you are going to be ostracized by your culture. And Jesus says, be sexually pure before marriage and engage in holy, joyful, regular sex with your spouse afterward. And if you do that, you're going to be ostracized and you're going to be an outcast. But... You're going to reveal your love for Jesus to be the real deal. Second one, the exclusive truth of the gospel. That word exclusive is important. In the gospel, according to Oprah Winfrey and Joel Osteen and Rob Bell and a lot of other people in our day, the gospel isn't the singular true message which grants eternal life, and Jesus is not the way, singular, the truth, singular, and the life, singular. But though the exclusive truth of the Scripture and the Gospel be denied, it remains true. Paul says it this way in Romans 3, 4, Let God be true, and every man a liar. In our culture, every man is a liar on this. God has one way that he has made available for people to enter into his presence. And it's through belief in the gospel. And if you believe this and you proclaim it to others, you'll be an outcast in society. But you'll reveal your love for Jesus to be real. Third one, modesty. I'm going to step on some toes here probably. But this is a parallel issue to the idol temple. People in our culture worship the body and they worship sex along with it. And so they have no sense of what should not be publicly revealed or what is sin- that it is sinful to intentionally titillate one another. You hear me on this? That it is sinful to intentionally arouse each other. If you are not married to that person, they ought not see parts of your body. Is not because the body is a shameful thing, but because it is a holy thing. And modesty ought to be a Christian virtue. And loving, it's the loving approach to each other. You hear me when I say that? What you're doing is looking out for your brothers and your sisters. You're protecting them. And that's a good thing, it's a loving thing to do. Last one entertainment. If I didn't step on your toes this last time, I will on this one. All right? People in our culture watch and engage in all kinds of things which a Christian ought not watch, participate in, or enjoy. If the Holy Spirit is present within us, then we ought not as Christians come up with elaborate justifications for doing what our conscience tells us we would not do if Jesus were sitting next to us. Because here's the deal. Jesus is not sitting next to you. He is within you by the Holy Spirit. When I was a kid growing up, they'd say, you know, if Jesus showed up at the movie theater, would you watch that? And I'd go, you know what? Here's the thing. That's not bad, but the deal is, is that Jesus is already there. You took him along on the trip. Because you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Some of you guys have been to places that Jesus has no business being. Either virtually or otherwise. Some of you women, same way, have read things or participated in chat rooms or whatever else. That Jesus has no business being in that spot don't come up with elaborate justifications for why you should be able to do this. Just repent and change. I'm not a legalist, and I really hope you aren't either. I don't obey the commandments in order to make God happy with me. I do the commandments because I love Jesus, and I want to please Him because I love Him. Amen? That's what ought to motivate us to repent and to change, okay? Let's not bow down to an idol. Let's worship Jesus Christ. God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would deliver us from the idols of our culture, that you would deliver us from the need to fit in, from the need to be culturally and socially acceptable and well thought of by our friends and family and opinion makers in our world. Father, we know that if we are offensive to other people, that that is not the worst of all things. The worst is that we would not stand out and therefore be offensive to you. And Father, we pray that that our, our life and our way of, of living would be full of grace, seasoned with salt, that it may benefit those who interact with us. Father, we pray for your mercy and your grace, for your Holy Spirit to empower our repentance and growth and change. In Jesus' name, amen.